name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want you to think back to a time when it seemed that all hope was lost. It could be setting by the bedside of someone you love who is dying or looking at the bank account of your business, perhaps trying to find a place to live or a place that is hiring. It might even be something more personal, an addiction that controls your life, a chronic depression that dominates the landscapes of your thoughts, maybe even a disease or an injury that causes you pain that no one else understands. Many of us, perhaps all of us, have had moments and seasons when hope evaporated so quickly that it felt like that we were in a parched desert, a landscape devoid of life, and that the dark night of the soul seems to be the only true thing we have left. The reason I bring these painful memories back is to help us to begin to understand the demoniac the man whose life had been destroyed by demons. Now, before we go much further, just a word about demons and illness. There are indeed dark forces in this world. Some people, including St. Paul, talk about spiritual warfare. And St. Peter cautions us to be constantly vigilant and to be sober. Because the devil is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But at the same time, we have made advancements in medicine and understand neurosciences and mental health, dementia, schizophrenia, and a whole host of diseases like that, which people 2,000 years ago would not begin to understand. Except to maybe perhaps say that this person has a demon or an unclean spirit. But we must take St. Luke at his word and that this man is indeed possessed by a legion of demons. But we must also be cautious before we assign all the troubles that befall us or our loved ones as some sort of demonic activity. The church always advocates for people who are concerned to go to speak to their priest but also to seek medical help first. And with our prayers, the sacramental rites, and the healings that doctors can give, we can come to solutions. So please hear me when I say this. During the dark seasons of life, please go get help for yourself, what you need. But also come and see me and let us pray for you and help how we can. Now, there are three main characters in this passage. Jesus, the demoniac, and the crowd of people who act as one body after this healing has taken place. Let's start with the demoniac. St. Luke has given us a very detailed account of this man. He is naked. He is out of his mind. He lives in tombs, which makes him, as a, if he was Jewish, ritually unclean. He has been shackled and chained up like a wild animal, and he screams and yells, falling at Jesus' feet. If we were to encounter such a person, we would probably be rather afraid. 
Something that we might miss in our reading of this passage, though, is that Jesus has traveled to the region of the Gerasenes. And these were mainly Gentile people who lived on the eastern bank of the Sea of Galilee, stretching about 30 miles or so. It is into this pagan culture that Jesus sets sail and steps on the bank to encounter a culture that is unclean, that raises unclean animals, remember the swine, and a culture that would have been extremely superstitious and looking for curses and demons in everyday life. This man, possessed with demons, is there, and the demons have complete control over his faculties. He is besides himself. There is no hope for him. Jesus immediately displays his authority by asking the name of the demon, Legion. The reason this is highly significant is that by knowing their name, knowing the names of these demons, Jesus can exercise authority over them. In ancient times, giving someone your name allowed them to have certain control over you, a certain amount of authority over you. And you only gave your names to those people who you knew or who you trusted. And those were not necessarily exclusive things either. Jesus, having the name of the demons, can then do what no one else can do for this man. He can cast out the demons, but he can also restore and heal this man. For that is what exorcism is. It is a healing. But something curious takes place that's hard to understand. Jesus makes a negotiated settlement with the demons. They ask not to be cast back into the abyss, but rather to be allowed to possess something that Jews would find repugnant and unclean. They ask Jesus to give them leave to possess a herd of swine. Here, once again, time and distance from the story maybe fails us. We sometimes scratch our heads and wonder why Jesus let the demons go into the swine, and then the swine kill themselves. Well, to the first century Jewish audience, this meant only one thing, that the justice of God had prevailed. There would not have been questions about the morality of Jesus, in essence, killing these swine. This is a story about the justice of God being seen in real life. Unclean, demoniac spirits being cast out of a man, allowed to enter and possess also unclean swine, only then to have the whole lot of unclean demons and swines run off a cliff and into a lake and drown, thus destroying themselves and everything unclean, is a sign of God's justice. But it's also a reminder to us that evil which is what these demons represent, evil can never do anything good. Evil is always evil. Evil is always destructive, always destroys everything around it. 
And in the end, evil will always destroy itself. After all this, people begin to come and see what has happened just outside of their town. And they find this man, whom everyone was afraid of, clothed, in his right mind, and back to normal. They find swineherders who had lost their livelihood, and they are afraid. What are they afraid of? Why would they be afraid? I think they were afraid for several reasons at the same time. They're afraid of the power and the authority that Jesus has just shown in this exorcism, in this healing, in this judgment that he has given. They are afraid because of what Jesus represents. Justice, mercy, peace, hope. If Jesus stays with them, Jesus might rid these pagan people of more than one man's demons and a herd of swine. Jesus might confront them about the other unclean things in their midst. This isn't a question about belief. They clearly know what Jesus is capable of. Rather, this is a question of willingness, of the willingness to be rid of evil to uproot vice and sin. Jesus has come to make them clean. And instead of asking Jesus to come and abide with them for a little while, they ask him to leave. This reminds me of a scene out of a book by C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce. And it's a long story, so just I'll give you this little snapshot. In it, there's a ghost, and the ghost is somebody who has died. And this ghost has a problem, because on his shoulder is this lizard, a grotesque, big, ugly-looking lizard. Think like Komodo dragon or something. And it's sitting on his shoulder like a parasite, and it's feeding the man lies and twisting the truth. The lizard is a personification of evil. And as the scene plays out, an angel comes and offers to kill the lizard for the man. And the man vacillates between yes and no, worried about will it hurt, wondering what he will do without this sin, without this lizard. And eventually, the lizard speaks up, feeding the man more and more lies just like sin does to you and to me. And the lizard says to the ghost, and, and this is the lizard talking, be careful, be very careful. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Then you would be without me forever and ever. And that's not natural. I'll be good. I admit, I've gone too far in the past sometimes, but I promise I won't ever do it again. 
And while this is going on, the angel asks again, and the man is convinced that he will die if the lizard is taken off of his shoulder. But then he decides it might be better to be dead than to have the lizard live with him. So he gives permission. And Lewis describes the ghost as letting out a scream of agony such as I'd never heard on earth. As the angel grabs the lizard and breaks its back and then flings it on the ground. Except only then does Lewis see that this man, this ghost, is becoming a fully restored man. He describes him as strong, alive, and innocent. You see, the people of that region understood that sometimes to purge your life of sin, of the demons that truly do haunt you, it's a painful experience in the moment. It can be very painful in the moment, but it only lasts for a moment. What they did not understand is that after the initial pain comes the healing that truly makes one alive. We all have those sins that we need to purge out of our lives. Sometimes we call them addictions, like drug or alcohol abuse, gambling, viewing pornography in all of its forms. Other times it is the desire to steal or destroy something that belongs to someone else. Perhaps it's wrath and rage over something that happened long ago. and We just don't want to give it up because it defines who I am. And if I give it up, I don't know who I'll be anymore. And sometimes we open ourselves up to an invasion, if you will, by dabbling in things that we know as a Christian we ought not, and things that God desires us not to be in. And the door is left open for sin and evil to come and abide with us. The point is this. Jesus comes to heal us, to drive away the sin of our lives, but we must give him permission to heal us. We must be willing to allow God's justice to be active in our hearts. Like the swine that ran down the hill, once we give it to Jesus and allow him to take it from us, we must let it die. It can never take root in our souls again. This poor man, and if you notice, he's not referred to as a demoniac any longer at the end of our reading, is clothed and restored because that's how Jesus leaves us, not as broken vessels or broken people, but as people who are healed, renewed, put back to right, and perhaps even made hopeful again. At the beginning of the story, 
The man tortured by demons wanted nothing to do with Jesus. But now in the end, he desires to go with him. Instead, Jesus gives him a vocation, a mission, just like he gives to each one of us. Go and tell what wonderful things God has done for you. Jesus doesn't pull him away from his town, the people that he knows, because sometimes the healing that one person experiences might be the catalyst for the healing of an entire community. If this man goes around the city, striking up conversations, recounting what Jesus had done for him and how God's justice ruled the day, then others may come as well and want the same healing for themselves. Today, in a few moments, we will remind ourselves of our sins. Let those things that trouble us come to the forefront. The sins that grip us like that lizard in the Lewis story. The deep wounds of hurt. And during that time, we hand them over to Jesus. We give Jesus the permission to take them from us. We confess in this liturgy the thoughts words and deeds that are at odds with our Christian life. We confess that we have done things which we ought not to have done, but also that in our ignorance and perhaps even in our laziness, we have left undone many things as well. We will confess that we have not loved God with our whole heart. But once you know and feel the saving work of Christ in your life, our call is to go and tell others what wonderful things God has done. We go and proclaim to those, especially those whom you know, who need to heal, need to hear the healing words of Jesus. That he has healed you. He has made you whole. And then we invite them to come with us to the foot of the cross and find healing and comfort and the restoration that only Jesus can give. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.